0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Good morning, church. I trust that you had a good Christmas, spoke with many of you, and, and you said that that was the case, and I, wanted to el- I want to, uh, to echo Ethan's welcome to you. If you are, are new with us, we're happy that, uh, that you decided to, to join us um, I tried to think of thoughts that may be going through your mind if you're here with us for the first time. Where's the pastor and who left these two young guys in charge? Um, But um, let's look together to God's Word. Uh, So if you would turn to James chapter 4 verse 6. That's where we're going to begin. Today is going to have, this morning is going to have a slightly different feel from our custom as many of you know who are here with us regularly, it is uh, the conviction of our church staff that we teach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, because we want to create a culture that, um, that is indoctrinated in the whole counsel of God's Word. Um, but there are times when uh, a topical study is in order. Usually those times fall on Sundays when I preach, because it is the most natural, natural time. So this morning... We're going to be talking about pride and humility. And I approach this subject with one disclaimer, and that is that I am much more experienced in the former than in the latter. I have much more experience with pride than I do with humility. While you are turning to James chapter 4, verse 6, I want to share with you um, a poem that will illustrate and, and set the, uh, the stage for us this morning. Maybe you remember this. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood 4-2, to two, but with one inning more to play. And when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a sickly silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go in deep despair. The rest clung to that hope eternal, uh, that hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought if only Casey could get but a whack at that, they'd put up even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey, as did also Jimmy Blake, and the former was a pudding and the latter was a fake. So upon that stricken multitude, grim melancholy set, for there seemed but little chance of Casey's getting to the bat, but Flynn let drive a single to the wonderment of all, to the wonderment of all, and Blake, the much despised, tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted, and the men saw what had occurred, there was Jimmy safe at second, and Flynn a hugging third. Then, from five thousand throats and more, there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley. It rattled in the dell. It knocked upon the mountain, and it recoiled upon the flat. For Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was pride in Casey's bearing and a smile on Casey's face. And when responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat. No stranger in the crowd could doubt Twas Casey at the bat. Ten thousand eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. Five thousand tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then while the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip... Defiance gleamed in Casey's eye. A sneer curled Casey's lip. And now the leather-covered sphere came hurtling through the air, and Casey stood a-watching it in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. "'From the benches black with people, there went up a muffled roar, "'like the beating of the storm waves on a stern and distant shore. "'Kill him! Kill the umpire!' shouted somewhere from the stand, "'and likely they'd have killed him had not Casey raised his hand. "'With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage shone. "'He stilled the rising tumult and bade the game go on. "'He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the spheroid flew, "'but Casey still ignored it,' the umpire said. "'Strike two. Fraud, cried the maddened thousands, and, echoed answered, and Echo answered fraud. But one scornful look from Casey, and the audience was awed. They saw his face grew stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain, and they knew that Casey wouldn't let the ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go, and now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. Now I I typed all of that out, the truth be known, I could probably quote most of it to you without notes. It was a uh, staple of my childhood, perhaps you remember it from yours. But it illustrates a few points that I hope to make this morning. The first of which is found in Proverbs chapter 16 verse, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. This morning we're going, to be, we're going to be discussing the the top the topics of, of pride and humility. And admittedly, I, I want to make known to you this: that in the words of C.J. Mahaney in his book on humility, he says anyone who writes a book on humility is probably disqualified from talking about it. It would be like me standing up here and say, "This is going to be the best darn sermon you've ever heard on humility." And, and certainly, the same goes true for preaching on humility. Preaching on the subject as if I have it figured out almost disqualifies me from the task. But this is a risk worth taking. I believe that a discussion on pride and how it grips our hearts and the propensity that it has to rule our lives is so important. I believe it is a risk worth taking because of the words of James chapter 4, verse 6, which hopefully you have made your way to now. It says this, but he gives more Grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you understand the weight of the first part of that verse? God opposes the proud. We are born enemies of God, we are born with pride as the natural disposition. Of our hearts. And if we are not careful, even when we come into saving knowledge of Christ, pride still has too high of a place in our lives. God opposes the proud. Now, I suppose perhaps you might expect for me to, to say something like this. Now, James 4 6 says that God opposes the proud. But God, if you have pride, God doesn't oppose you. You see, there's a a Greek word here, and it it really means this. And it doesn't mean that God opposes you, but no, I can't do that. That is what the text says. God opposes the proud. This is a problem. It's a problem for us because it is the natural disposition of our heart and if we do not respond to our God, if we do not respond to God first in salvation with softness, suppleness, humility of our hearts, there is no knowledge of Christ. The act of coming to God. I heard a man say uh, one time, this is the most humbling thing he ever did, was to come down front in, the, in front of a bunch of people and admit that I was wrong. But apart from such an admission, there is no Christ. There is no salvation. We must have hearts that are humble in coming to Christ and in living a life that is marked by likeness. So here are the reasons. I, I want to, to first convince you of why this is such an important topic. I did not want you to get the impression that I am here before you trying to say, listen, in the whole completing the circle of your Christian life, in order to be a good, well-rounded Christian, one of the 12 things that you have to have is humility. So this morning we're going to focus on humility because it's one of the 12. And, And if you don't have, you know, or one of the whatever number you come up with. No, humility is the foundation of knowledge of God. Coming before Him, acknowledging that you are not the boss, but He is. Humility is the foundational key. It is not just a part of the equation. Uh, Scripture gives us the man Jesus Christ and the one uh, pervasive characteristic, the characteristic that we can't help but see, is Christ's humility. It is so closely bound to holiness that there is no Christ-likeness apart from humility. If it is true, this is reason number one, If it is true that Jesus was lowly, and if it is true that Jesus was humble, and if it is true that Jesus was foremost a servant, then we can in no way say that we are Christ-like if we are not humble. We can in no way say that we are Christ-like if we are not humble in this specific way. So this morning, let's endeavor to understand this thing of humility. A hymn speaks of it in this way. Speaks of Christ. There is not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. None else could heal all of our, all of our soul's diseases. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows about all our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There is not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, Not one. No friend like him is so high and holy, and yet no friend is so meek and lowly. We cherish the many great benefits of our Savior, the salvation, the fact that he knows our our struggles, the fact that he can heal our soul's diseases, but we must understand that all of these benefits of our Savior are brokered at the hand of his humility. And without this humility, we cannot say that we are Christ-like. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says this, where Jesus abrogated his rights, where he set them aside. He denied in some wise his rights. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. If you want to to find a good example of what humility is, look to Christmas, where God of very God, the man Jesus Christ, took on human flesh, came to live with us, came to understand our struggles, and died for us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So for these reasons, I want want you to think about something. I want you to consider something this morning. Stop asking God to make you Christ-like. Stop asking God to make you like Christ. Now I have to qualify that so that you understand what I mean. If we come to God in prayer... That's this what I love about this. These, these topical sermons, it allows us to be very practical. If we come to God in prayer and we say, Jesus, make me like you. There's a possibility that we won't even know what that means. If we just say, Jesus, make me like you in general. Make me like Christ. We have no idea of what that even looks like. I would challenge you. Don't ask God to make you like Christ in general. Ask him to make you like Christ in specific. There is no such thing of being Christ-like in general. There is only this being like Christ in specific. In actually doing Christ-like things. That is what makes us like Christ. It is uh, axiomatic, it is simple. it is foundational. There is no Christ-likeness apart from self-abasement. Second reason, the first reason uh, why humility, why we're spending so much time, why this is an important struggle or, or an important topic, is because if Jesus was lowly, we can't say that we were like Jesus unless we are lowly. Secondly, because the best way to lead yourself into sin is, is to convince yourself that you do not have any. When you approach scripture, when you approach the Bible, when you approach preaching, and the pastor is speaking on any given sin, any given condition of your heart, is your natural tendency to think, no, 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 I don't don't have that. I don't don't struggle. I don't struggle with that. That's not not me. That's not, not that one. Or is your natural tendency to say, let me examine my heart to see where that is true? Because we're all the same. We're all sinful. And I think that if we convince ourselves that we have no sin, or if we convince ourselves that we are above a certain sin, or if we convince ourselves that we have matured to a certain point, that we are out of reach of sin's grasp, then we are guilty of what John warns about in 1 John if you say that you have no sin you make Christ a liar let us consider these things and their weight you begin to think that you are aloof that you are not subject to the temptations and in fact you are not subject to the rules of everyone else you're not subject to the to the ordinary course of things as a matter of fact you have advanced to another point there are all kinds of other people who really need the discipleship but Praise God, they have you to look to. Pride says, I used to operate on grace, but now I am running on my own steam because I am mature. Look at me. Jesus does not have to dole out his grace to me anymore. Oh, foolish brother, please do not live believing these things. I remember thinking during times of intense trial. When am I going to be able to get to the place in my maturity that I won't have to depend so much on God? Have you ever thought that? When am I ever going to get to the place that I'll be strong enough? When am I ever going to get to the place that I'm mature enough? But what I didn't realize was that the purpose of my trials, and I would say to you, the purpose of your trials are not to make you stronger. The purpose of your trials are to make you more dependent. The purpose of your trials are to make you rely and to make you see that you don't have what it takes. But Jesus does. God was trying to get this through my thick head. So here, I'm going to try to endeavor to go through a something of a... A biblical study of what pride and humility are. And these are just a few things that are certainly not exhaustive, but perhaps a, a good way to put flesh on this discussion. First of all, I think that pride shows itself in the, in the topic that we just discussed, in self-sufficiency. So I can do it. I have what it takes. This, this uh, rugged individualism which is woven so thickly into the, uh, into the, uh, the fiber of who we are as Westerners. Pride says, I've got this. Pride says, look at my pedigree. Look at my track record. Look at my resume. Pride says, God gave me this burden because he knew that I was strong enough to bear it. Pride says, God will be pleased by my doing blank for him. Self-sufficiency. Secondly, there's super-spirituality. Super-spirituality says, the rules don't apply to me. The rules apply to all those other people out there who need them. Super-spirituality is responded to by Isaiah when he says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Super-spirituality says, I am exempt from the regular order of things because I am mature. Super-spirituality raises hands in worship while cursing a brother or sister under his breath self-sufficiency, I can do it on my own steam, super spirituality, I'm above everyone else, misunderstood grace. And I think perhaps for my generation, misunderstood grace is probably uh, where the money is at, so to speak, in pride. See, our culture now is producing people who say this, I don't have to do blank in order to be a Christian, or I can do blank and still be a Christian. And just leave the discussion at that. See, we're under grace now. Not under the law. We're under grace. It's like a badge of honor worn by those who have heard just enough Bible half-truths to be dangerous. Self-sufficiency, super-spirituality, misunderstood grace, and legalism. Legalism says man needs to get to God. We need to, by our efforts... Get to God. Christianity is found on the premise that God has come to man. This is why legalism is so anti-gospel. Christianity says that God has come to man. Legalism says man must go to God. Um, You understand, because of legalism, there's a reason. Uh, One one person has has described the natural condition of all man is we're just all spring-loaded legalists. We come out of the womb thinking that we have to accomplish our own salvation. We come out of the womb thinking that is why every other religion in the world, other than Christianity, is about getting to God, appeasing a God who is personal and may or may not let you in one day. It's the natural state of man. Many Christians, however, live the same way. They think to themselves, and I'm saying this because I know, I have walked this road. Well, I haven't done X today, so God probably isn't pleased with me. Oh, I haven't, I haven't prayed for 30 minutes, or I haven't had a quiet time that was long enough or spiritual enough. God will remove his blessing from me. It's this retribution thing. I haven't prayed for so many number of minutes, like I said, God might be angry with me. Notice the pride here. We assume that we have what it takes to make a holy God pleased with us. Now there's another extreme. It, you, it is possible, to, don't, don't misunderstand me, it is possible to do things that make God grieved. But let us never assume that God is happy, that he is pleased with us in our salvation because of things that we have done. That is anti-gospel. But here's the rub. Here's the rub. Legalists and genuine lovers of Jesus, people who who think that they can please God by their own works and people who have been changed by grace, they will often look a lot alike. Think about that for a minute. The legalist is going to be serving the church, going to have his hands dirty, and so will the, the disciple. They're just doing it for two radically different reasons. The legalist has his hands dirty because he wants to please God with his works. And the disciple has his hands dirty because he's been changed and he just wants to worship God. They'll look a lot alike. The only difference is the motive. And that is why pride and humility are such important topics. Because often they cannot be seen. They cannot be seen. You understand there's a certain temptation there. If I am engaged in open sin that people can see, Ethan can rebuke me because he sees it. But if I'm engaged in all kinds of pride in my heart and nobody can see it, then nobody in the church can hold me accountable. So what is humility? There's a little... A little discussion on what pride is. Here's what humility is. Some, some practical, just some working definition. Sometimes you hear folks saying all the time, humility doesn't mean that you have to be a doormat. And this is true. To a certain extent, there's a grain of truth here. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you always have to, to, to set aside justice. Sometimes it is worth showing people that we know a God who is full of justice. Okay, sometimes that is the case. But this too can be taken to an extreme. Humility understands that sometimes we have to set our rights aside to show a world that we serve a God who one day will make everything right. Who one day will vindicate us. We don't have to fight for our rights because there is a God who has created rights who will set everything right one day. That is why it is is sometimes necessary for us to be the doormat to show people such a, a countercultural message that they wonder about the Jesus that we have. Humility is not the natural state of man. I talked about Casey earlier, the athlete. Today, when you go home and you turn on some ball game, perhaps, I don't even know if there are any ball games on or who's playing or, or what, how many times... Have you seen a football player, maybe on a blooper reel, <clears throat> running toward the end zone? He breaks away from all those who are trying to tackle him, and then he jumps in celebration into the end zone only to have his elbow hit on the one-yard line. That is usually on Sports Center's not top ten or something like that. Or uh, someone doing a, a victory dance when they've just missed the shot. And the only person that doesn't know it in the stadium is him because he turned too quickly. Humility is not the natural state of man. That is why we must strive to know Jesus in this respect because it looks so starkly different from everything else. Would you be willing to be the doormat so that others could see Christ? Would you be willing to say, down with my rights? As one speaker I heard this week said, down with my rights, up with my joy. Down with my rights, up with my Christ, so that others could see him. It's commonplace to see people fighting for their rights. It is not commonplace to see someone saying, you know what? I serve a God who will set it right one day. So humility means that perhaps you'll get walked on. But humility allows you to be okay with being walked on because you understand that you deserve far worse. You understand. Oh, you, you, you deserve far, more, far worse. So here are the remedies to the things that we spoke about a moment ago. I said that the first example of, of pride may be self-sufficiency. The remedy to this is God-dependency. While self-sufficiency says, I've got this, God-dependency says, there is no way I can handle this. But God is about to show how great he is by handling it for me. This is not to say, let go and let God, hands off. This is to say, I will work but trusting. I will work trusting that God is doing something in me that I cannot accomplish myself. Self-sufficiency says, look at my pedigree. God-dependency says what Paul says in Philippians 3. Notice what Paul said. Basically, Paul uh, is, is making a little speech and he lays out before him his resume. And he says, if anyone has reason to be proud, it is me. He says this, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, one of the the two tribes that could actually trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. The tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. See, it's like, it's like Paul says, Listen, I've thrown my pedigree away, but I'm going to grab it up out of the trash and uncrumple it and read it to you again just so that you know that I'm the one who deserved all the accolades. I'm the one who really deserved favor with God and then I'm going to ball it back up and throw it away because it's no good. The only thing that is good is faith in Jesus. While self-sufficiency says, I am good enough, God-dependency says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. In the spirit of Second Corinthians 3, <clears throat> God dependency understands that while we work, God brings the harvest. There is a movie, <clears throat> and I have a clip for you to watch. There is a movie. Uh, anybody uh, a fan of uh, Jimmy Stewart? Well, that's good for you there. Jimmy Stewart in the movie Shenandoah um, understood God's blessing this way. Go ahead. Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We work dog-bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food we're about to eat. Amen. Thank you, Jimmy. Secondly is this. <clears throat> While pride manifests itself in, in super-spirituality, the remedy to this is actual, genuine holiness. Holiness is the opposite of super-spirituality. The super spiritual are those who are concerned with looking holy. The disciples are those who are concerned with being holy. It's interesting. If you are actually holy, you will look holy. If you are just concerned with looking holy, you may find that you don't know Christ at all. The humble people are those who are concerned with being holy. Super spiritual people are those who say, I have read the Bible. It doesn't say that I have to blank. Humble person says, the Bible doesn't specifically say it, but in order to be like Christ, I'll do it. In order to, to humble myself, I'll do this thing. And I heard someone say, you know, well, Greg, I'm just not really called to do that. I'm like, well, you know, I'm not called to clean up, throw up off of a bus either. But I might have to do it in order to be like Christ. Super-spiritual people just repeat catchphrases they have heard their whole lives to look holy. Holy people just read the Bible and know it. Holy people understand the words of 1 Samuel. They say, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, super-spiritual people are so embarrassed of sin that they say, I don't have sin. Holy people are so embarrassed of sin that they run to the Savior. The third way that pride manifests itself was misunderstood grace. Well, the remedy for that, naturally, is understood grace. Understood grace says, I like to sin. Or misunderstood grace says, hey, you know, I like to sin. God likes to forgive. we just got a good deal working out here. Misunderstood grace says, you know, I've read the Bible. It says that we're no longer under the law anymore. We're under grace, so I can just kind of, you know, no rules. Understood grace says, shall we continue to sin because we are under, under grace? May it never be. Grace misunderstood is a license to sin. Grace understood is a lifestyle of defeating sin. In the words of John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And the best way for sin to kill you is if you deny that you have any. I want to read for you a short quote from a book called Humility. My voice is failing. This is a new thing. If you don't have this book, I encourage you to get it. It's about $4 on Amazon. If you don't have $4... I'll give you $4. If you're too proud to ask me for $4, then maybe my sermon hasn't worked this morning. Men sometimes speak as if humility and meekness would rob us of what is noble and manlike. Oh, that all would believe that this is the nobility of the kingdom of heaven. That this is the royal spirit that the king of heaven himself displayed. That this is Godlike to humble oneself, to become the servant of all. The last way that pride manifests itself um, was through legalism. It says, I need to work more for God. I need to make Him happy. I need to make Him pleased. Discipleship says, God has finished the work on the cross. Or in the words of Jesus who knew what he was talking about, it is finished. See, the legalist works because he needs to please God, but the disciple works because he loves God. Both work for radically different motives. So I want to leave you with these words. They also come from Andrew Murray, and just by way of introduction, Andrew Murray was a a missionary from Scotland to South Africa in the late 1800s and early 1900s. He was a prolific writer. I would encourage you to get your hands on anything that he wrote. He said once, this is just an aside, um, he considered missions to be the chief end of the church and gave his life to it. This is what he said. Brethren, here is the path to the higher life. Down, lower down. Down. This was what Jesus ever said to the disciples who were thinking of being great in the kingdom and of sitting on his right hand and on his left. Seek not, ask not for exaltation. That is God's work. Look to it that you may abase and humble yourself and take no place before God or man but that of a servant. That is your work. Let that be your one purpose and prayer. God is faithful. Just as water ever seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds the creature abased and empty, his glory and power flow into exalt and to bless. He that humbleth himself, that must be our one care, shall be exalted That is God's care. By His mighty power and in His great love will He do it. So this morning I challenge you. Ask God. God, make me humble. Search your heart. Is there pride? Are there any crevices deeply within the the far reaches of your heart that cry out, Me. Me. Instead of cry out, Christ. So for the believer, Satan wants you proud. First of all, it keeps you away from the Savior because in pride you don't recognize your need for him. We see this going on in the world. Satan seems to be doing a very good job of removing the term sin from our vocabulary. And where he cannot remove the term He just removes the idea that anything that I do is actually sin. We see this with recent events. Today it seems that the only sin is saying that there is sin. But if Satan can get a world to believe, if Satan can get a world to believe that they have no sin, then that world has no need for a Savior. In their minds. This is why Satan wants you proud, Christian. Because it keeps you away from the Savior. keeps you away from daily repentance. You don't recognize your need for him. Further, it leads to sin. It in fact is sin. It is the unseating of Christ in your heart to make room for more of self. So Christian, will you today repent? Perhaps you have heard the Word of God today, and you think to yourself, All I know is self. All I've ever known is self. All I know is what makes me happy. And you realize that you have a need for this Savior. You have never come to Him, you have never confessed that you are wrong. You have never confessed, like we all must. That we need a Savior. Perhaps you feel distant from God because you are distant from God. You still live only for you. Jesus has not yet taken hold of you. But today you see it. I hope this is you. I am here to tell you that there is a Savior. There is a holy and righteous God, while though we, through our sin, fall short of his glory and have no business being anywhere near him, he sent his son Jesus, the, the, uh, the season that we just celebrated in Christmas, to be just, in other words, he's not going to sweep sin under the rug. He's still just. He's going to be just and the justifier. He's going to be holy and he offers to make you holy too. You understand, if if our God was not just, He would simply uh, let everyone get away with it. But the reality is that my sin and your sin will all be punished somehow. It will either be punished in the finished work of Jesus, who lived a perfect life that we could not live and died for you, or it will be punished in you in an eternity separated from God. Either way, our God is just. He will not sweep sin under the rug, but he wants, he pleads, he sits at the right hand of God, ready right now to make intercession for you, to plead your case before the Father. If you would only come and say, Jesus, I'm wrong. You're right. Will you save me? Would you do that? Pray with me. God, I come to you totally without any good thing. There is no reason inside of me that you would want me. But because of the great love with which you loved us, you for some reason sought to save sinners who had no business being around you. And just like that offer was extended in the body of Jesus as he walked the earth. It is extended in the word of God today. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, I pray for those believers in here who have become convicted, as have I, over their pride. I pray that we would be marked by the same characteristics as Jesus was marked. I pray that we would no longer pray weak prayers, but that we would pray specific prayers. That we would not just say, God, make me like Jesus, but that we would say, God, make me like Jesus in this way, that I see that I fall short in my life. And Lord, for the one this morning who fills your tug on their heart. The one who has come to know, perhaps even this morning, I'm a sinner. I need God. I pray that they would understand that you are welcoming them with open arms. That you sent your son to the cross to pay the penalty that they owed so that they may have fellowship with you and that we may have fellowship with one another. Ethan's going to begin to play, and we're going to have a time of response. We invite you to think on the things that you have heard this morning, the words that we have sung, the word of God that has been read, and respond to him in the way, in a spirit of prayer still, in the way that he leads you. Perhaps this morning you recognize that you need a Savior. I hope that you know that you will be greeted here by a body of people who recognize that they, too, still need a Savior. If you're a believer here and you recognize, I'm guilty, I'm guilty of pride, and you need to do some kind of business with God, I encourage you, make haste, do that. Perhaps you've, you've come to, to believe that this is the place that God has called you to come and join our church. We would love to, to talk with you about that. However, God leads you, please obey. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.